is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we love hearing your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And it's time for our On Leadership series, where we hear from coaches, leaders in the military, leaders in business, and leaders in communities across this great country. And this edition is with Bill Koch, whose company Oxbow Carbon has over 1,200 employees and $4 billion in annual revenue. Bill has also led America to a victory in the world's premier sailing competition, the America's Cup, and did it on his first try. But today he brings us some formational leadership stories from his younger days starting at his high school, Culver Academy. At Culver, you know, my first year, I, you know, I got beat up a lot and rassed a lot. Uh, and when I was at Culver, some of the advisors told me that I couldn't get into MIT. <laughs> and then when I got into MIT, I said, well, you know, you're at the bottom of the class. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't think you'll make it. <laughs> and then I found out that if I wanted to do well, uh, mainly to impress my father, as well as mainly to develop my own skills and my own accomplishments. So I just would work very, very hard. Uh, you know, if I had to go to the bathroom, I'd take a, a book with me. <laughs> so I worked really hard. And then I graduated with top honors and then got my doctorate's degree from it. And I've always been seemed to be told that I can't do something. <laughs> you know, being harassed and told I was dumb, an idiot, some other things. So that has become a big challenge for me. I mean, it, it can have two effects. Either you stay a nerd the rest of your life or an idiot the rest of your life, or you uh, take advantage of it. In fact, you know, I probably have a little OCD. <laughs> and I looked at it and said, well, that could either kill me or I could use it to an advantage. So I used it to work very hard. <laughs> and surprisingly, I got more honors than all my brothers put together. <laughs> we just made a couple of them pissed. But I um, wanted to play basketball. I thought the sport was terrific. But in our freshman year, the varsity only won one game. But we as freshmen couldn't play on the varsity in those days. Now they can, then you couldn't. And we were a bunch of nerds. And MIT went out and got this one coach from Methuen High School. It was a northern mill town that was dying in northern Massachusetts. And he had the longest winning record of any high school in the country. So MIT recruited him. And when we became sophomores and were playing on the varsity, we also won only one game. And the uh, coach, you know, took a while to learn out the MIT system, to <laughs> learn what nerds we are <laughs> and what, uh, how clumsy and awkward we were. So I wanted to play more on the varsity, so I went up and went to a summer camp that he had so I could practice all summer. And also that avoided me going out and working on the ranch. <laughs> and I could possibly chase girls, <laughs> even though it was in, in Methuen. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he, he told me he had a, a new plan. 
and he came up with a new play. But he came up with only one play because he said we weren't smart enough to learn more than one. <laughs> These nerds from MIT. And he was also uh, afraid that if, if uh, we all had different plays, we'd get too confused. And then he just drilled us over and over and over in that same play so we could do it in our sleep. So it was you know, habitual. Then he started giving us variations off the play, which was great. But the most powerful thing he did was that he put people in the right spots to minimize their weakness and maximize their strengths. And he defined jobs. You know, and he said, okay, your, your job is to bring up the ball and dribble it, and dribble it up and set up a play. And then your job is to get rebounds and block shots and put up pivots. And then he said to another guy, all right, your job is to go after the best shooter on the other side <laughs> and rough him up a little bit. But he made it very succinct. Well, anyway, in our junior year, we won over half our games. Our senior year, we had the longest winning streak in the country and the least points scored against us. And, and so I looked at that and said, that's a, you know, and I sat on the damn bench, <laughs> but it was terrific. I, I learned it because that was one of the best lessons I made, ever learned at MIT. How important teamwork is and focus. And well, the guy also told us, you guys are winners. You know, if you think you're gonna lose, you will lose. You know, if you think you're going to win, at least you have a 50-50 chance of winning. And I said, that's terrific, you know? And he said, you work all work together. I mean, it's remarkable because not one of us could have even joined, got in any other college. In fact, we probably wouldn't even made intramural teams. <laughs> and, and relying upon your teammates, you know? And, not be a star. I think uh, Ren Arbuck said, any of you guys on the pro team, you can, if you want to be a superstar, any one of you can score, score 30 points a night. But if you do, we're going to lose. And instead, we got to work as a team. And if we win, then we're all heroes. And that's so true. And Red Auerbach is one of my heroes, one of my dad's heroes. My dad was my coach. I was a point guard on an all-state team. And my goodness, learned a lot of these lessons from my coach and a coach named Bobby Knight, who I spent some time with in the most foundational parts of my life. And it was all about these lessons, about knowing your job, being accountable to the job, too. If your job's to rebound and block out that guy, rebound and block out that guy. And your teammates are depending on you. And what lessons learned. And it's amazing, right? This, this industrialist, this businessman, he's talking about college and college sports. And this is why sports is so important for so many people, because where else do we get these lessons taught? Bill Koch's story, his leadership story, and a coach's story, and the impact that man had on those boys who turned into men, here on Our American Stories.
we continue here with our American stories, it might seem like an April Fool's joke. The Navy commissioned its newest destroyer on April 1st, a few years ago, and they named it after a man who deliberately crash-landed a perfectly good aircraft behind enemy lines. But the man who became the first American serviceman in the Korean War to receive the Medal of Honor and the man who lent his name to the USS Thomas Hudner had a darn good reason, perhaps the best of reasons. Here's Greg Hengler. It was December 4, 1950, and 26-year-old Navy Lieutenant Thomas Hudner was flying an armed reconnaissance mission over the Chosen Reservoir in North Korea. The battle raging pitted nearly 100,000 Chinese troops against 15,000 United States Marines and soldiers. Cut off and surrounded, the Americans on the ground depended on the support of combat pilots like Hudner and his wingman, 24-year-old naval officer, Jesse Leroy Brown. Brown, a seasoned pilot and the Navy's first black aviator, was the son of a sharecropper and grew up in a Hattiesburg, Mississippi shack with no electricity. Hudner, who is white, was born in an affluent New England family. Yet the two men forged a deep bond at a time when the military and the nation was deeply divided on racial lines. Theirs was an incredible friendship that would be brutally tested that day. Here's Lieutenant Thomas Hudner with the story. Near the end of November 1950, we had soldiers and Marines on the ground who were driving up in the vicinity of the Chosen Reservoir, headed on up towards the Yellow River, which is the dividing line between Manchuria and North Korea. Chinese were pouring across the Yellow River in great numbers and were attacking our troops and surrounding them, and they needed help desperately. We were flying above the mountains. The map showed the terrain in this area would be as high as 6,000 feet. The flight was going on with um, uh, nothing unusual. When Jesse called out that he's losing power, couldn't maintain altitude, and he thought he's going to have to crash land his airplane. When the plane hit the ground, it was bent at the cockpit at about a 30-degree angle and the engine was torn off the airplane. Then we saw that the canopy of the aircraft had opened. Jesse had opened the canopy of the airplane and waved to us to let us know that he had survived, but he didn't get out of the airplane. And then we saw that smoke was coming out from under the cowling of the airplane, indicating there was some sort of fire. Dick Savoli came back on our frequency and said that a helicopter was on the way up but it might be half an hour before it could get up there. And when I realized that Jesse's airplane may burst into flame before it could get there, I made a decision to uh, make a, a wheels-up landing, crash close enough to his airplane, and pull him out of the cockpit and wait for the helicopter to come. The snow was about a foot and a half deep, and I, when I got over to Jesse's airplane, I could see that he was... Uh, the reason he hadn't gotten out of the aircraft was because as the fuselage had buckled, it had pinned his knee in the plane. And on the Corsair, there isn't a horizontal surface in the whole airplane. The wings come down from the fuselage and then go up 
to about six feet out from the fuselage. So getting up to look into the cockpit was difficult. I had to hold on with one hand just to hold on to the cockpit. I scooped up a handful of snow and threw it up under the cowling trying to... I knew I wouldn't put the fire out if there was a fire, but at least to um, dampen anything that was in there. And after about half an hour of this, a helicopter arrived on the scene. The pilot came over to help. His name was Charlie Ward, a Marine First Lieutenant. <clears throat> but Charlie and I worked, <clears throat> worked for about 15 or 20 minutes, seeing that there was absolutely nothing we could do. <clears throat> the fire extinguisher, after a few squirts under the cowling, did no good whatsoever and the axe just bounced off the fuselage. It did no good at all. So then Charlie called me aside and he said that those helicopters were not equipped for flying at night and he couldn't stay, he had to go. And he gave me the choice of uh, staying with Jesse or going with him. It would have been suicide to have stayed Jesse had been wavering in and out of consciousness. I wasn't sure when he was conscious and when he wasn't. The temperature was at least around zero and went as low as 35 degrees below zero at night. And uh, I've, I made the decision to go with Charlie. I told Jesse we were going back to uh, get equipment. We couldn't, couldn't get him out of the airplane as it was. And I don't know if he, if, if he heard me, I don't know if he was alive at the time. When I got back out to the ship, the captain called me the bridge right away, and he had the helicopter ready, the ship's flight surgeon, and he had a number of aircraft. He was going to take that carrier in as close to offshore as he possibly could, send the flight surgeon and the helicopter to the site of the wreckage, cut Jesse's body out of the airplane and bring him back to the ship. And I told him it was a very humane but only a symbolic gesture because it was much, much too dangerous to do so. So there's a flight of uh, Corsairs within with napalm with other aircraft flying escort and support for them. And they found our two airplanes and dropped napalm. And they destroyed his airplane and my airplane. So Jesse died a warrior's death in a funeral pyre. I think that in retrospect, it was almost a natural thing for guys, um, guys in combat to do for shipmates and comrades. Had I been on the ground, I think I would have had enough faith in my shipmates for somebody to do something. And I felt that yes, there was a chance that I wouldn't, but to save Jesse's life was worth it. And I do feel very strongly about our doing this for freedom, but you know, the bottom line is that freedom doesn't mean nearly as much as spending a lot of time with these guys, especially under times of stress and everything. Guys will do anything for one another. Looking back ever since I got the medal and, and seeing some of those people who are no longer with us, what they did, maybe there are 10 times as many people who should have gotten the medal. Maybe it's only twice as much, I don't know. But by God, we're not the only people that earned it. All these guys have stories. The music may be different, but it's all the same story. On April 13th, 1951, 
Hudner became the first American serviceman in the Korean War to receive the Medal of Honor. And Hudner, along with his shipmates, took up a collection for Jesse's daughter, who was two at the time. The crew raised the equivalent of $24,000 today for her college fund. Seven months following his commissioning ceremony on November 13, 2017, Thomas Hudner died at 93 years of age. More than half a century after President Harry S. Truman integrated the military in 1948, Hudner and Brown's legacy is evident. Hudner and Brown biographer Adam Makos writes, These two men, Jesse was a pioneer and Tom was a hero, but together they helped pave the way for the military we have today. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And thanks to Greg Hengler for telling that story. And what a story indeed. And what a great racial story. A white man laying down his life for his fellow airmen and doing it without reservation. And we're talking about Medal of Honor recipient, Navy Lieutenant Thomas Hudner, and Naval Officer Jesse Leroy Brown, his pal. In the end, his friend. And Jesse was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And we don't broadcast far. We're up here in Oxford, Mississippi, not too far south of Memphis. And he grew up at a time, well, where black people in the south were treated poorly, and in the, in the north, too. Racism is a deep fact of life, but not for these two men. And the military, time and again, leads so often in the culture, bringing people together in common cause. And that's the Forgotten War, many people call the Korean War the Forgotten War. Because so little is spoken about that war. It's World War II, it's Vietnam, it's Iraq. But we tell the stories of all the wars and all of our fallen men and the survivors too. Because they're important stories here on Our American Stories. And we're looking for you to share your hero stories, soldiers' stories, on this show, past and present. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org always. We have time for these stories. Navy Lieutenant Thomas Hudner's story. In a way, his pal Jesse Leroy Brown's story too. And a great American story about race and love. Here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and this one is unusual. I want to read a quote from John Gardner, the former Secretary of Health under Lyndon Johnson, the President of the United States in the 60s. Quote, the society which scorns excellence in plumbing as a humble activity and tolerates shoddiness in philosophy because it is an exalted activity will have neither good plumbing nor good philosophy. Neither its pipes nor its theories will hold water. This is the unspoken story about the small, unmentionable seat in the corner of our lives, or said another way, this is how we have been shaped by our grossest national product. Here's Greg Hengler. (laughs) 
Elvis died in one, and Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, was born on one. Although we use them every day, most of us know very little about toilets. Here's author of The Porcelain God, Julie Horin, and public health historian, David Rossner. Not only did civilization start with the onset of writing, but it also started with man actually coming and getting a, a hold of his sanitation needs. Creation of sanitary systems were in some sense the basis for creating great cities and great communities. The earliest written reference to the disposal of human waste is more than 3,600 years old and is found in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 23.12-13, God instructs the Hebrews to do their exodus in a holy fashion. You are to have a place outside the camp. Go there to relieve yourself. You are to have a digging tool in your equipment. When you relieve yourself, dig a hole with it and cover up your excrement. For hundreds of thousands of years before this was written, Human beings simply squatted when they had the urge to go. As the world became more populated, disposal of human waste became a bit more difficult. In ancient Egypt, cities began to spring up from the desert. By 2500 BC, the Egyptians solved the waste disposal dilemma, constructing bathrooms with latrines which were flushed by hand with buckets of water. The latrines emptied into earthenware pipes many of which are still functional today. The Roman Empire also had a public sewage system. Here's David Rossner and sociologist Stephen Seufer. Rome was not built in a day, but it was built around its water supply system and its ability to get rid of its material without polluting itself or polluting people downstream. Their development of the bathroom was incredible. Middle-class Romans in their homes were able to hook up a private bathroom to the public sewer system that Rome had developed and actually have the waste carried away to the main sewage disposal plant. Like Rome's private lavatories, their public latrines, which were seat holes carved into stone benches, were erected over channels of water that came from distant mountain streams that flowed through aqueducts for over 200 miles. Here's poet Eva Upglin visiting some Roman restroom ruins. This was a communal privy. You'd have sat here, the seat has disappeared, and your waste would have dropped into this drainage channel here. The water flushed the waste away, nobody had to touch it, and of course, as it dropped into the water, that minimised smell. Now then, this second water channel running in front of us here was what you would have used to wash yourself afterwards. You would have had a stick with a piece of sponge on the end, dip that in the water, wash behind yourself, thus giving rise to the phrase the importance of not getting hold of the wrong end of the stick. But the privy, which takes its name from the Latin word for privacy, couldn't save the Roman Empire. And when it finally fell, the water-fed toilet fell into the lavatorial dark ages, clogging up toilet innovation for more than a thousand years. During these medieval times, castle dwellers would strengthen their defenses by dumping waste into their moats. The raw sewage discouraged invaders from crossing. Here's physicist Charles Panetti, author of Extraordinary Origins. 
The only thing that you had indoors for the next, really, a thousand years was the chamber pot, which was really something of a horror story. It was a convenience in one way when you needed to go in the middle of the night. At nighttime was the time when people would dump the contents of this uh, chamber pot outside their windows into the streets below. And the idea that a man walks on the left side of the female dates back to this time. It was polite for him to get hit by the contents of the chamber pot and to spare the woman. In the 16th century, the flushing toilet made its debut in England. The first nearly modern toilet was made for Queen Elizabeth I in 1596. It was made by her godson, Sir John Harrington. He made it to get back in her good graces because she had banished him from court for using foul language. He came up with a really clever device. It had a tank at the top, it had a valve you opened to let water down, and there was a trap door that you could close after you used the toilet. Harrington's primitive toilet had a critical design flaw. One, the flushing sound was ear-piercing. And, number two, the pipe beneath the bowl was vertical. Waste went straight down, and sewer smells came straight up. The queen complained that fumes came up from the cesspool, uh, but it was a problem that her godson was never able to solve. You realize how bad the situation was if you look at the Palace of Versailles. A fortune was spent in constructing it. It had these wonderful hall of mirrors, elaborate chandeliers, and you might have a thousand people being entertained, eating and drinking copiously, but where did they go to the bathroom? There was not a single bathroom in the entire elaborate palace. And the answer is, they went in the stairwells. And one of the reasons the French applied so much perfume during that period was to overcome all of the indoor odors from people relieving themselves. Outside Versailles, People were relieving themselves in indoor cesspits. They were simply benches or seats perched over holes lined with wood, stone, or brick. Their main drawback, aside from the smell, was that you had to pay nightmen called scavengers wielding a bucket and a shovel to clean them out and carry them on a horse-drawn cart to local streams and rivers. This is why it pays to be upstream. And if you ventured into town and nature called, a man called a Johnny offered his customers privacy. He wore a large black cape and carried a chamber pot. The customer would pay a half a cent and squat over the pot while Johnny covered him with the large cape. Fast forward to 18th century America. Colonists modified the cesspit by taking it outside and constructing a small wooden shack over it. The outhouse was born. They would place the uh, outhouses far enough from the house where there would not be uh, problems with smell or with seeping into the water supply of the house. In 1775, while America was embroiled in the Revolutionary War, back in the mother country, another revolution was taking place. British watchmaker Alexander Cumming filed for the first ever patent on a toilet with a twist. Literally, the pipe beneath Cummings' toilet bowl curved backward in a distinctive S-shaped bend. This allowed water to pool in the U-shaped part of the pipe, cutting off the explosive and stinky sewer gas from below. It actually is the modern toilet because we still have that water separating us from the cesspool today. 
Long before President Lyndon Johnson held meetings with Robert Kennedy while sitting on the John, the toilet played a leading role in governing our nation. America's first owner of this modern toilet was Thomas Jefferson, who had three of these elite oddities installed at Monticello. By the dawn of the 19th century, one important factor was still missing. Without working sewers, waste was just too big a load for the cesspits of the city and seeped deep into the ground. And when we come back, more on the story, the history of the toilet with Greg Hengler. Here on Our American Stories. stories and that was Jeff Daniels in the infamous toilet scene from 1994's Dumb and Dumber. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the unspoken story of the toilet. By the dawn of the 19th century, one important factor was still missing. Without working sewers, waste was just too big a load for the cesspits of the city and seeped deep into the ground. Here's David Rossner and scientist Adam Hart Davis. If you have a privy and it's uh, not too far away from your pump, you're going to have a real problem. You may literally be drinking the excrement that you're dumping the day before. Absolutely disgusting. And when they had drains, the drains simply went out into the streets, so all the streets were running with sewage. Toilet technology could only go so far until engineers could construct water delivery systems like the Roman aqueducts, able to service entire cities. In 1842, contending with the sudden rise of population due to an influx of immigrants, New York City paved the way. The system's designers harnessed a fundamental law of nature, that water always flows downhill. That water in your city follows the same principle. Water is pumped to the top of giant towers that are linked to pipes beneath the streets. Since the tower is higher than the water's final destination, Gravity maintains pressure and forces the water through the pipes to your tap and toilet. After water is used, gravity is rendered once again and carries it away through sewer pipes angled downhill. During the 19th century, more and more cities followed New York's example. At the turn of the 20th century, plumbing was an exploding business in America, much like web search engines are today. And by the 1930s, America's entire urban population had access to running water. In 1854, a 10-year-old boy, John Michael Kohler, was brought to America from Austria by his father. This boy would become the Steve Jobs of toilet technology. With the purchase of a majority interest in Union Iron and Steel Foundry in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, 19 years later, he founded Kohler Company and successfully traversed the burgeoning sanitation market. 
The father of six developed his company into one of the few family-owned businesses still in existence dating from the turn of the century. About three-quarters of feces is water and 10% is undigested food, but the remaining 15% is all bacteria, billions of them. And it's these bacteria that give feces its distinctive smell. Most of the bacteria are harmless and spend their lives processing the food inside our intestines, but some are lethal. Feces contain all the fiber that we can't digest that comes in the breakfast cereal and in fresh fruits and vegetables and so on. They contain the remains of dead blood cells, which is why it's brown, because that's what the remains are. It's stuff called bilirubin, which comes from broken down blood cells, and it contains enormous quantities of bacteria. And if you ingest those bacteria, if you eat them, then you're going to get very ill. Historically, the two great diseases that are associated with human waste are, of course, cholera. People can be perfectly healthy in the morning and be dead, literally dead in the evening. And uh, typhoid, another horrendous disease that is terrifying in its various aspects in that it creates terrible welts and rashes and also terrible fevers and sickness among anyone who comes into contact with it. Between 1831 to 1832, 50,000 Brits died from cholera. In Paris, cholera killed 18,000 in a single summer. The U.S. was next. Cholera had been moving east from Asia into Europe. In 1832, it had reached Paris and it had reached London, and it was very, very serious disease. We never expected to hit here. And then 1832, it hit Boston, it hit Philadelphia. More than 150,000 Americans died during the two cholera pandemics between 1832 and 1849. With the help of the new toilet, the westernized world was drowning in its own excrement. The smell, germs, and death finally led politicians to an effective solution. High-capacity sewers that carried the waste far away from town. They're sort of monuments to excrement, if you like. And uh, I've been down the sewers, and it's absolutely amazing how well they were built. The stuff running through them is not fun, but the sewers themselves are utterly brilliant. As the astronauts were to be the heroes of the 20th century, in the 19th century, toilet inventors were the giants that walked among men. The key innovation was a water siphoning system to force waste through the base of the bowl with unparalleled efficiency. What worked then still works now. Once the toilet bowl's flush handle is pulled, a valve inside the holding tank called the flapper opens up and water drains quickly into the bowl through a series of angled holes under the rim. The man who is often credited with inventing this flushing wonder probably had little to do with it. Thomas Crapper. Yes, he really existed. What he did patent is the pull chain that worked in conjunction with a valveless cistern, thus decreasing noise and preserving water. Due to his toilet innovations, the Victorian-era plumbing magnate earned himself a place in toilet history, if only by selling lots of them. 
During World War I, when American soldiers were stationed over in Britain, they would come across a lot of these toilets and they started the euphemism of, I'm going to the crapper, and they based it on what they saw on the toilets, which said Thomas Crapper and company. And the John is derived from the toilets installed at Harvard University in 1735, which were emblazoned with the manufacturer's name Reverend Edward Johns. While Crapper and Johns were making a name for themselves, two enterprising brothers were busy inventing the toilet's most essential accessory. Although the Chinese invented paper in the second century, it took them more than 1,200 years to get around to using it in the bathroom. They finally did in 1391 AD, but it was strictly for the use of emperors. Where did that leave commoners? People generally used their hands, and, in, and currently in many uh, countries around the world where paper is a premium, people continue to use their left hand. That is why when you travel to uh, parts of the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and Asia, you won't find any left-handed people. Everyone there is right-handed because the left hand is considered unclean. In medieval Europe, commoners used hay, grass, and plant leaves to clean themselves. In early America, Millions used corn cobs. The cobs were softened first by prolonged soaking in water. The corn cobs were generally given to the pigs to eat, and then when the pigs were finished with them and there was just the cob left, they would take those and use them to wipe themselves. So there was very little waste. When mass-published newspapers and catalogs became commonplace in the 19th century, Americans finally said goodbye to corn cobs and hello to Sears Roebuck. People would take the catalog, hang it in their outhouses, and they would read from it while they were doing their business. And at the finish of the business, they would tear off a piece and use it to wipe themselves. Things changed in the 20s. Unfortunately, Sears started using glossy print paper. The absorbing benefits of the catalog kind of lost it. So you didn't see so many people using the Sears catalog as toilet paper from then on. By that time, however, consumers had another option, real toilet paper. Here's Ken Fishberg, author of Toilet Paper Encyclopedia, and Charles Panetti. There was a man named Joseph Gaetti. He was a New Yorker, and he had a paper business in New Jersey. He was the first person who actually took paper, cut it into sheets, into small sheets, and sold it through drugstores as therapeutic paper. The people who bought them thought the paper was too nice and ended up using it as stationery, writing on it, and still using their catalog. In 1879, entrepreneurs Irvin and brother Clarence Scott began selling rolled toilet paper. It was made from tissue paper bought from other manufacturers, which they cut up, rolled, and repackaged. Although there have been some improvements over the years, today's toilet tissue is made basically the same way. In the 1940s, Scott's competitor, Northern Paper Mills of Green Bay, Wisconsin, began using chemicals to completely dissolve wood fibers and refer to their toilet paper as splinter-free. Today, nearly 2.4 billion people around the world don't have toilets. Nearly 150,000 people die every year from cholera. That's more than AIDS. In 2007, the prestigious British Medical Journal's 11,000 medical experts and readers, mostly doctors, voted modern sanitation as the number one medical advance since 1840. Not antibiotics, not vaccines, 
but toilets and clean water. The average human life expectancy increased nearly 35 years over the span of the 20th century. Roughly 30 of those 35 years are attributable to improvements in sanitation. Unless you count NASA's space toilets, the post-war era brought mostly incremental shifts in shapes and colors and shag carpet seat covers. While Harrington's godmother Elizabeth I might be baffled by a 21st century porcelain throne, Queen Victoria would easily recognize the seat upon which her great-great-granddaughter, Elizabeth II, does her sovereign business. Harry, are you in there? In this modern Game of Thrones... Be right out! We're all privileged members of the same royal family. I hope you're not using the toilet, it's broken! I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, Greg. And what a story. And by the way, we learned about this problem in cities, too, when we were discussing the evolution of the automobile. Horse poop all over the streets of New York, Philadelphia, Boston. You'll learn this only here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And our own Alex Cortez went on a road trip to an event called Open Call, where Walmart opens their doors to over 500 entrepreneurs to come to their headquarters what they call the home office in Bentonville, Arkansas, and pitch their American-made products to get into their over 11,000 stores. It's a great democratization of the buying process for folks who may not know anyone at Walmart, and it's a part of Walmart's commitment to buy an additional $250 billion worth of American-made products in a 10-year period. And now, Alex brings us this open call story. It was 10.30 a.m. and it suddenly got louder as the entrepreneurs came out of the rooms where they had their half-hour pitch meetings. And a Houstonian named Mike Watts came out and showed me the sheet that he just kissed. Oh yeah, we've got our, uh, our, our sheet here. We've got our sheet here. It says, yes, thank you for a great meeting. We look forward to continuing this journey. And uh, they want it. They want our product. We're going to be able to add jobs immediately in our local hometown. Today we have 32 full-time employees. Based on this meeting, we're going to be able to add more immediately. I expect it maybe about 50 employees by Christmas. So I just am so excited that, that that's 50 families, right, that are now going to have a job. I can't even express to you how excited that we are. It's a dream come true. It really is a dream come true. Mike's company, Love Handle, has a phone grip that you slip your fingers through. It is better than anything else on the market and will now be in a market called Walmart. I think I'm just going to go around here and high-five people and uh, pass out all these love handles to anybody that's willing to take them. We literally brought uh, 2,000 of them with us, and we've passed out a few hundred already. So we're going to spend the rest of the day sharing the love with everyone that's here in Bentonville. And I'm probably going to do a bunch of social media videos and just share the enthusiasm. Fixing to probably go live and uh, jump and do some backflips. I don't even know if I can do a backflip, but I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs> 
I had my first job at 15 because I wanted to have some money. Yeah, you want a car? Fine. Earn some money, go buy a car. You want to go take a girl out on a date? Well, you better have some money to do it. So 15 years old, you know, I went to the mall and uh, they just opened up a baseball card shop. I was like, man, I love baseball cards and I love being at the mall because that's where the girls were. So I, I got my dream job there at 15 and next thing you know, I became manager. And so by the time I was 18 years old, I was running 14 employees there, all older than me, hiring and firing and uh, had a shoe store and a you know, clothing store that I was running and operating. So I learned about what it takes for people to buy, like how to sell, how to merchandise, how inventory works, what margin is, and all those things at a very early age. And I think that planted a seed in me that I wanted to be able to, to be in that space because it was so exciting. So I left corporate America when I was 30 years old. And I've been a full-time entrepreneur for the last 14 years. Uh, when I left, I had three small children at home nice corporate job very comfortable but it just wasn't for me uh, it was you know three percent raise every year and there was a ceiling there that i couldn't break through and i just felt like i could do more on my own and so i want to thank my wife for believing in me from day one the day i left my corporate job and she's been side by side like even before then we had a side hustle going i was selling stuff at home and garden shows every weekend every holiday every sick day i was trying to make some extra money so she could stay home with the kids but back then, she was traveling with me, with our first child. He would sit underneath the table all weekend in a home and garden show watching Veggie Tales on a little VCR player that we carried around. I'm dating myself with the VCR. And uh, he would sit under there and watch videos while we were up top. And the customers never knew. Like, there's tablecloth. They didn't know he was under there. And he's under there, and we're just hustling, trying to make extra money. And eventually, he couldn't travel. We had another child. And so all that leading up to the point where we're finally like, let's make a go of it. We found this patented trim trimmer head and it solved another problem for weekend warriors that were cutting their grass this is a trimmer head that would fit any trimmer but the lines don't break and they last so much longer and so you know you can go out and cut your whole yard and never change the line and we're going to make a go of it with that and she's like uh, let's do it like let's put all our chips in the middle we walked away from health insurance we walked away from everything that would have possibly uh, been what traditionally called security and we went for it, and it's really paid off. So I encourage people to, to take those risks out there that might seem like too big. I, I'd say the biggest risk is to do nothing at all, to sit complacently behind and let other people dictate what your life is. And Mike's business partner, his old man, thought the same way. He had also left his job. He worked in a chemical plant for years and became a piping designer, and then they offered him a package out. And that was, I know, looking at him as a mentor, he took the money that they gave him in a package, 18 months pay, and he took all that money. He bought tables, chairs, tents, and margarita machines, and he started a party rental business. And that party rental business has been in business now for over 25 years. Me and my dad, you know, side by side, right? How cool is that, that we get to partner up together? And he lets me be the boss, right? And he's the cheerleader, and, and it's a great setup. And then eventually we cashed out and took an exit from our largest distributor. But then when we sold the company, I went home, he went home. And we were kind of sad. Like selling a child. You know, it's like, not exactly, but it, it's, it's not easy. Because you've invested so much of yourself personally into building it up. And then to give someone else the keys, and then they show you the door. It doesn't matter how, what that wire transfer looks like. It's, it's going to hurt. But it's part of the process, and I think that the best healing that can happen is to do it all over again. Like... Yeah, you can only like play around the house and go fishing, you know, so much, right? We love fishing, but you can only go so much before you, you're trying to figure out, like, what do we do next? 
And so I was on the hunt for the next new thing. And when I found this product, you know, I'm not smart enough to invent anything, right? I'm on the hunt always for great new products. And when I find one, I'll meet with the inventor and say, look, I'm a passionate marketer. I want to give your product life. I want to take it to the world so they make a difference and I'll make you a millionaire in the process. So that's what we did with this product. It was invented by John Murphy in Minnesota. And we partnered with him five years ago. And this one, we're not selling this one. So anybody out there listening, it's not for sale. Uh, this is going to be a cash cow that's going to create jobs for a long time in the future. I think Love Handle will be a story that we hear about and a household name that you're going to know for, for you know, decades to come. And we've been listening to Mike Watson. He's the co-founder of Love Handle. And what a father-son relationship we're hearing. Because let's face it, this dad let his son and the mother too go out and go be an entrepreneur. And go start and build things on his own. At 15, he was, well, doing what he loved, working with, well, baseball cards and girls. And the next thing you know, by 18, he's managing employees and managing something. He's not an infant at 18. He's an adult. And the family's treating him as such. When we come back, we'll continue with Mike Watts, the story of Love Handle, and the story of Walmart, and their open call here on Our American Story. And we continue with Our American Stories and the story of Walmart's open call, where over 500 entrepreneurs pitched to get into their stores and where we met Mike Watts, who co-founded a phone grip company called Love Handle with his old man. Let's return to the story. We've invested everything we had into this idea, literally everything. We had a big exit, but we pushed all our chips back in the middle on this idea because we believed in it. But did their family and friends believe that they were crazy for risking everything in the nice life that they just earned? Some did. Some did. Some some said we should just ride the wave, you know, into off into the wild sunset. But we told ourselves, we promised ourselves this time, we're like, look, it's gonna be hard, there's gonna be tough days, and there's been a lot of tough days. But we're going to enjoy the ride. Here's Mike on their toughest day. We uh, ordered our first batch of product from China. We had $500,000 worth of product that came in. And they had gotten cheap glue, used some cheap glue, so the product just fell apart. We had to literally, no refunds. You know, it's not like Walmart. You can't take your back with your receipt. We, we literally loaded it in a truck, took it to the dump, and had to push half a million dollars worth of product into the dump right out of the gate. And then we had no way to make any product. Like We had no product to sell. It was, we had to go with no money. I, I went for no pay, with no pay, for four and a half years. Zero income. We paid all the employees, but me and my dad, we worked for free. Um, up until just very recently, I was finally able to draw a modest salary. And, I, and I'll keep that going until there's, you know, something happens in the future. But I'm really, I'm not in it for the money. Like when I'm, I'm in it to try to make the most out of my life. Like, I feel like I have a purpose in my life to, uh, to motivate other people to, to find their uh, dreams and to achieve those dreams. So maybe by hearing my story, someone else says, you know what, I'm going to try that. I'm gonna, if he can do it, anybody can do it. And that's true. Perseverance, positive perseverance is, is what it takes. You have to be willing to get yourself back up quickly 
dust yourself off, and then find a new path. And ultimately, it's the best thing that could have happened to us because it forced me to say, I'm going to find a way to make this in America. And so now our product is top quality. It'll always be top quality. Everything's made in-house, 100%. So we can still make it at a cost that's almost exactly the same of what we can make in China. And even though uh, the product that we would get out of China would be far inferior, we've actually had to go in and design our own elastic, the weave, and the components. We had to design it from the bottom up to be for this purpose only because we're carrying around $1,000 phones. And I'm telling my customers, you can trust this thing because you can. Uh, the adhesive is the top grade. The elastic is the top grade. The welding process that we do to, to, to put them together is tested and it's top class. So like, it's a really, really high quality product. For that toughest day and all days, Mike has a source of strength that's beyond anything that he could muster. God's opened up so many doors for us, time and time again. We've and, and, and He's closed doors that that we thought should be open, right? And we didn't have, we don't have control of this whole thing, right? I'm just trying to do the best I can. He's the CEO. I'm the janitor. Everybody knows me as the janitor at work, right? Because I want to be a servant leader. I really do, and learn from the way that he led. And so we very much believe that he has a purpose with this company and that he is going to grow us in ways that it's going to glorify him. And so having that sort of long-term faith takes a lot of pressure off of me, right? Because now if we succeed or we fail, you know, in quotes, uh, it's not on me. It's, it's him, right? So I'm just trying to do the best I can to lean in and step forward into the dark room and do the hard work and then try to hopefully see some results uh, before I check out. One of those doors opened had Shark Tank's Damon John walking through it. He reached out to me. I was a dream of mine to be on Shark Tank, right? Like, big Shark Tank fan. I've seen every episode. Uh, we auditioned twice and made it to the second round both times, but never actually got to go on set. He was starting to use our product and fell in love with it, just like all our customers do, and was ordering it on our website. But that, you know, I think the lesson here is that as an entrepreneur, like I was, that was a late night, everyone else had gone home. I'm sitting there looking through one order at a time, just seeing who's, who's ordering, what are they ordering? Like trying to understand our customers. And then I see that, and it said the Shark Group, which is his branding company in New York City. And I, was, I knew who they were. I was like, that's Damon's company. I was like, oh my goodness, so there's a phone number. I was like, call, get Simone. Simone works for Damon, build a relationship with her, send a bunch of product, print some with his new book title on it, with the Shark Group on it, you know, and then now I'm impressing him. And next thing you know, the phone rings. He gives us a call. He's like, look, I don't do this. I don't need to do this. I don't have, I got people bringing me products all day long. Your product is that good. We got to work something out. I was like, great. So a little back and forth. I didn't, I didn't just jump at it, um, which I think, again, earned some respect from him because, you know, he's, we're like cut out of the same cloth. He's a, just a straight 100% pure thoroughbred entrepreneur. And so am I. And so we've got to got that common ground for us. And so he, uh, we worked out a deal that made sense. So now it's a DMD products. Dave's my dad, right? He's the patriarch. Uh, I'm Mike. And then we got Damon John. So uh, we call him Uncle D, Uncle Damon. Uh, but yeah, so it gave me access to his whole team, 
I, I was actually supposed to be on the set of Shark Tank on Monday, uh, just backstage. Like, so that was my dream to get on Shark Tank. He was going to let me like come backstage and hang out with Lori and Mark Cuban and Mr. Wonderful and, and all that stuff. But the, the, my flight got canceled, so I didn't get to go. But I still, again, I think there's a better plan. Maybe I'm going to be a shark one day. You never know. But first, Mike had to pitch to get into this big place called Walmart. We're prepared. We came in prepared. We've been practicing. They gave us some information about make sure you're storytelling, right? Tell them a story. And so we really refined that going into it. I wanted them to tell them a story about the inventory that we had to push and why we make our products in America, right? And I wanted to tell them a story about how I made a deal with Damon John from Shark Tank and how he's a business partner of mine now. And uh, we had a video clip from Damon that, that we played in there addressed to them, right? So we came out guns a blazing, man. I want to genuinely say that this has been an amazing experience. From the moment we arrived at the airport here, the, the greeting that we were given and the fact that they genuinely care about American jobs. Like, it's not lip service here. They really care. And for them to uh, invite us up and to create an environment where we can show you know our little American-made product to them, and then now they're going to be able to give us hope to where we're going to be able to share that product and passion that we have with everyone. It's, it's just been amazing. They're a genuine partner. They're honest. They're just, I'm so excited to, to work with them. They're, they're the dream retailer. And Mike also has a dream employee named Scott, who was standing next to him. Well, Scott's great. You know, Scott has uh, been with us now for four months and is doing a killer job. Uh, if it wasn't for Scott, we wouldn't be here today. That's the short story. He, he went and he uh, proactively, I didn't ask him to, proactively submitted for us to go on open call. And so he took that initiative, which was huge, and because we would literally would not be here today, right? This, this whole thing. Good job, right? And he's constantly, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? He's the last one to leave with me at night. And it's, you know, having people like that on the team that feel as much like it's their business, even though he's only been here for four months, you know, it's invaluable. So, you know, to entrepreneurs out there, like, find people with that passion. Like, you can teach everything else, but if, if you can find people with passion and drive and a little bit of wit about them to find their way, then, then you're going to be successful. But you can't have Scott. He's mine. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been listening to Mike Watts, who's the co-founder of Love Handle, and what a story he had to tell about his life, about service, and about his father, and about Walmart. I mean, the remarkable thing, the story that's not told about Walmart, we know that they deliver lower prices and save people lots of money. And we know that they employ, well, over a million people, the largest employer in America. And they've raised the minimum wage without the government forcing them to. They just did it. And companies do this, folks, because they want to keep their people. But the biggest thing we didn't know was what we learned from Mike about the fact that if Walmart gives Love Handle, his company, an order, Love Handle gets to, well, employ more people. And so that's the downstream employment from our big American companies that nobody talks about. And this is where Walmart becomes a great, great corporate citizen. And by the way, we also got to hear Mike talk about service and being a good servant. In the end, that's what free market capitalism does. If you don't like the restaurant, if they don't serve you well, you leave. You get to vote with your feet and your wallet. And it's what makes, well, it's what makes this country great. The story of Walmart's open call and the story of Mike Watts, the co-founder of Love Handle, here on Our American Stories. And by the way, we're always looking for your stories about entrepreneurship. 
and about free markets and about, well, your business story, if you have one, or a friend or a relative or just someone in town who runs a great store. All these stories, quintessential American stories, here on Our American Stories. very much. I have a new single that's been out maybe 10 days or so. For those of you uh, who have not heard it, I will tell you that it was written and produced by a young man named Lionel Richie of the Commodores. And it's called Lady. Lady I'm your knight in shining armor and I love you You have made me what I am I am yours And we continue here with our American stories We're about to hurtle off into one of our favorite regular features The story of a song That was just Kenny Rogers you heard Introducing back in 1980 a new song of his written by a songwriter, a young songwriter named Lionel Richie. If you notice, the audience didn't scream and yell or applaud because, well, they didn't know who he was yet. He wasn't Lionel Richie yet. Now let's go to Greg Henkler for this installment of the story of a song. It's hard to believe but one of Kenny Rogers' biggest hits first appeared as an extra track on his 1980 Greatest Hits album, an album that would end up topping the country and pop album charts. The success of Lady also boosted Lionel Richie's career. The writing and production work was Richie's first outside the Commodores and foreshadowed his success as a solo act during the 1980s. Kenny Rogers once told an interviewer, the idea was that Lionel would come from R&B and I'd come from country and we'd meet somewhere in pop. Lady became the first song of the 1980s to chart on all four of Billboard magazine's singles charts for country, hot 100, adult contemporary, and top black singles. Here's Kenny Rogers telling the story of Lady at the Lionel Richie and Friends tribute concert back in 2012 with Richie sitting front and center. To say I'm excited about being a part of this is an understatement, to say the least. But you know, Lionel, first of all, I'm so proud of you, and I'm so happy for you. You know, you deserve what you're getting here. And Lionel and I met 32 years ago, right here in Las Vegas. But, you know, I'm so excited about this because now for those of you who are young, aspiring songwriters who want to learn how to pitch a song, Lionel is your guy. 
I called him from the Riviera here, and I said, Lionel, I'd love for you to come over and write a song for me. And he said, I don't think I have time. I said, well, I, it's going to be a part of a greatest hits album. It'll sell, I think, a minimum of four or five million records. He says, it's seven o'clock tomorrow night, okay. So he came in at seven o'clock, and we had this little upright rinky-dink piano in the dressing room, and he starts to play, and then he says, before I do this, I have to tell you, I pitched this to the Commodores, and they turned it down, which I thought was an interesting approach to selling a song. <laughs> so he sits down, and he starts playing, and he goes, lady, wait. wait. And the rest of it, la da 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 All he had was the one word. I said, how could they have turned that word down, I asked you. <laughs> so we go in the studio, six months later, we're recording. I finished the first verse of the song, and I'm sitting looking at the lyric sheets, and there's not a second verse. And I said, wait a minute, where's Lionel? I swear to God, he's in the toilet writing the second verse. <laughs> They said, he's at his best under pressure. So I am so excited about being here, you know. And uh, you're not just a friend of mine, but the song you wrote was truly a changing point in my career. It's one of the most identifiable songs I've ever done. I'd love to have you come up and sing it with me, if you will. Come on, come on. Softly 
And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And what a story. What a story about the pitch. What a story about how Lionel and Kenny came to make this song the hit it became. And what a hit it became. And I just will always picture in my mind that scene of Lionel in the bathroom, locked up, under pressure, so to speak, to come up with that second verse. The story of a song... The story and the end of a friendship between Kenny Rogers and Lionel Richie. Here on Our American Story. continue here with our American stories and this next one is about a really serious subject and one that affects so many millions of American families and we're talking about Alzheimer's disease and my friend Chuck Stetson and the Stetson family office does such terrific work in this area and we're doing so many really strong health stories in partnership with the Stetson family office and this is one he just kept coming at us with and just said, you got to tell this story. You've got to call this lady. And so today we bring you the story of Meryl Comer. She is an Emmy Award-winning reporter. She was one of the first women in the early 80s to host a nationally syndicated debate show. But about 20 years ago, Meryl's husband was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Here is her story. The man I live with is not the man I fell in love with and married. He has slowly been robbed of something we all take for granted, the ability to navigate the mundane activities of daily living, bathing, shaving, dressing, feeding, and using the bathroom. His inner clock is confused and can't be reset. His eyes are vacant and unaware, as if an internal window shade veils our access. Before I grasped what was happening, I was hurt and annoyed by my husband's behavior. Those feelings dissolved into unconditional empathy once I understood the cruelty of his diagnosis. Early onset Alzheimer's disease. He was 58. At first, I ran interference and fought for him because it was the right thing to do. He was slipping out of control, confused, childlike and helpless, his social filter stripped away. He shadowed me because I was familiar and safe, even when he could no longer remember my name. I always loved him, but during our marriage, he was often aloof and unreachable. In illness, unlike in health, he made me feel needed and important to him. Neither a scientist nor a neurologist, I have spent close to two decades trying to decipher what's going on in my husband's head. 
how hard and unfair it is for such a smart man to lose pieces of his intellect and independence as the circuitry of his brain misfires and corrodes. No new short-term memories stick. His internal navigational compass is shut down. His disease is my crossword puzzle. Harvey has long forgotten me, but I am constant as his co-pilot and guardian. Every conversation is inclusive and respectful, even though he is often unintelligible or mute. It is a charade that never ends. I bear the burden of all decisions for us both. The demons and terror of his world define mine. Any challenge is self-defeating. I play into his reality and pretend that his fate and our life together are not doomed. Unfortunately, I know better. Alzheimer's distorts and destroys shared memories that bind family ties. Caregivers are not unlike victims who survive a hurricane and find ourselves sifting through the rubble to rescue faded, storm-drenched photos or sentimental objects. We piece together what's left of our past and struggle to put down building blocks for the future. I need to make some sense of my journey through this storm. My bookshelf is lined with tomes on dementia care, yet the page I need always seems to be missing. Each brain unravels in its own quirky and idiosyncratic way. I have learned firsthand that there is no single solution to taking care of someone with dementia. Many times, personal stories involving Alzheimer's gloss over the unseemly details of care. They're written as love stories of unquestioned devotion, or living memorials to honor someone during better times. Why not? As spouses and caregivers, we deserve to do whatever works for us. It's our version of pain management. But I never wanted to embellish or soften the edges around the truth. It does not do justice to the cruelty of the disease. I offer you my own experiences from a position of hard-won humility. I hope you will thread them with your own. When I say I have cared full-time for Harvey in our home all these years, many ask me why. Even now, there is always an initial reflex that makes me want to say, do I really need to explain myself after all I've been through? I realize that the question is a natural one, a human one, a social one. The interlocutors are not judging me, but rather vicariously checking themselves. In questioning me, they're testing their own capacity to deal with the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and the potential impact it might have on their relationship with a partner or parent. When people hear my story, they sometimes tell me they wouldn't make the same choices. I do not hold myself up as an example to follow. No one who has ever been on the front lines of care ever questions when someone says, I can't do this anymore. But I do want to be part of the last generation of caregivers trapped by a loved one's diagnosis, an absence of disease-modifying therapies, and a troublesome lack of quality care options. When it comes to Alzheimer's, caregivers are frequently too worn out or isolated to protest. Perhaps this is why advocacy around the disease has often lacked the passion and energy that characterize the cancer and HIV AIDS communities. But how will people understand if we don't tell our stories without apology? 
Alzheimer's disease today affects a reported 5.4 million people in the United States and 44 million worldwide. Like a stealth invader, it is quietly demanding aging populations globally while pushing past cancer and HIV-AIDS as the most critical public health problem of our time. Every 68 seconds, another of us falls victim, yet 50% of those with dementia never get diagnosed. There is not a single FDA-approved drug that actually slows the progression of Alzheimer's disease. There have been too many failed late-stage clinical trials with promising drugs that seemed to work until it became clear they did not. Sometimes I think we'd be better off if Alzheimer's disease was a brand new emergency instead of a century-old threat to which we had somehow become inured. Perhaps people would understand that when it comes to this disease, everyone is a stakeholder because everyone is at risk. There are also 15 million caregivers just like me, unintended victims and not among the official count. Add to our legions those caring for loved ones, young and old, with diseases of the brain, traumatic brain injuries, and other chronic diseases complicated by a memory disorder. We speak the same language. Our numbers amplify the collective pain that makes it impossible for me to rest. The only way to minimize the effect of Alzheimer's disease is to get out in front of it, delay its onset, or even reverse its devastation of the mind. We need to move toward early diagnosis and study adults who do not yet show symptoms. People like you and me. Such a decision entails hard personal choices, risks, and emotional discomfort. It means demanding safe and clinically valid genetic tests that let us learn if we are at a higher risk for getting Alzheimer's disease. It requires managing our lives and choices under the shadow of the possibility of disease. Those of us who are 50 years or older must stop viewing ourselves as ageless. All of us should track our cognitive health, just as we do cholesterol levels or blood pressure. I write for all of us who are still well, but have seen the devastation of Alzheimer's disease firsthand. The emergency is with us and in us. I write to clinicians, reluctant to diagnose because they can't effectively treat. Please know the inadvertent trauma you inflict on families, left confused, hurt, and helpless. Then time runs out on the ultimate conversation with our loved ones about end-of-life wishes. Their minds are erased. It's simply too late. I write to reach the generation of our adult sons and daughters who struggle to understand our lives as we care for a loved one with Alzheimer's. They stand on the precipice and wrestle with issues and decisions similar to the ones we've faced. They deserve better options and not the bankrupting burden of our care. This is not the legacy we want for our children or the way any of us wish to be remembered. I write for my grandchildren because no matter how hard I tried, Alzheimer's blanketed my home with sadness. I know that loving each of them unconditionally has been my salvation. One day, I hope they'll read these words and appreciate my choices.
As I write these words, a faint glow fills the room I share with Harvey. He is always present, even though he is absent. There is an intimacy in our isolation. Nonetheless, I am willing to open the door to our room in the hope that you will find a way inside. Only then will my story be worth the pain of its telling. And thank you, Merrill, for that. And Merrill is now the president and CEO of the Jeffrey Bean Foundation Alzheimer's Initiative, which promotes early diagnosis of the disease. It struck her husband, her beloved husband, at the age of 58. A brutal stealth invader, 5.4 million in the U.S. alone suffer from the disease. Harvey's story and his bride's, Merrill Comer, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 